Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. I want you to turn to Matthew 16, first of all, tonight. I want to show you a principle that ties in with the first lecture on knowing God and how God wants us wants us to know him. And in Matthew chapter 16, we find the account of, of Jesus, and he's asking the disciples an unusual question, at least to, to me it seems unusual, in that Jesus has been with the disciples a, a certain amount of time, I'm not really sure how long, but maybe like a year or so, and Jesus turns to his disciples just at one moment and he asks a really odd question. And he say, he says, who do people say that I am? And in verse 13, he asks that question. In verse 14, they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then in verse 15, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? That, I, that to my way of thinking, is kind of an odd question. Jesus asking, here he's been with them, and then he's asking them, who who do who am I? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the most vocal of the disciples, it, it seems like from the scriptures, verse sixteen. And Simon P- Peter answered and said, "Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Jesus answered and said to him, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, this, this, from this passage of Scripture, I want to draw forth the principle of revelation. Now, Peter knew something that he didn't discern by his own knowledge and something that he had learned from a book. But the Father had revealed something to Peter, that this person, Jesus, who they had committed themselves to following, was not just a prophet, not just of one of the men of the stature of the Old Testament. But the Father had spoken to Peter and had revealed spiritually to him that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. and. In the same way, this is the way God wants to come to us by the Holy Spirit and to reveal Jesus to us. He wants us to know Jesus in the way that the Holy Spirit would make him real to us. There's two Greek words for knowledge. One is the Greek word gnosis, and that simply means general knowledge, just general knowledge about science, knowledge about the Bible, knowledge about statistics. It covers all areas of knowledge. But there's a second Greek word, and it's called epinosis. The word epi is, is a Greek prefix for above. So epinosis would be above knowledge or super knowledge or maybe supernatural knowledge. And this is knowledge that comes by revelation of the Holy Spirit. And revelation knowledge or epinosis knowledge only comes if God chooses to reveal it to us. See, knowledge we can find out by our own senses and by our own thinking and logic. But epinosis we cannot find on our own power. It is only as God would have grace and 
And as he, out of his love and mercy, would reveal things to us that we would know those things. Now, God has chosen to make himself known through the scripture. God has taken a lot of pain and effort to see that we have the written Bible down in our day. Things that happen, you know, two, three thousand years ago are recorded for us and preserved for us so that we might know God. So the Holy Spirit takes what has been originally written through human instruments by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as we study and as we meditate on the Bible, the written word of God, the Holy Spirit takes and makes that real to us so that we can, like Peter, say, he is the Christ, the son of the living God, because the Father has put a seed of life in our hearts. The Father has put that seed of revelation. And then after we have that seed of revelation, then it is, it's, it's the same as what Jesus said to Peter in verse 18. Jesus said, t- said, I say to you that you are Peter. And the word Peter means pebble or little stone. And he's saying to Peter, he says, you're a little stone. And upon this rock, and the word there is bedrock, large, massive rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Now, what is, the, what is the bedrock that Jesus is referring to there? Jesus says, I will build my church upon this rock, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. What is the bedrock? Revelation that Jesus was That's right, the revealed Christ. It isn't the Christ that is discerned by just natural knowledge, but it's the, it's the, it's the revealed Christ, the one that is revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And see, when the Holy Spirit makes things real to us, then we have that experience of knowing deep within us. And like one teacher I heard said, he said that when something is revealed to you, it's like you know that you know that you know. There's no question and doubt about it because God has put that seed of, of revelation in your heart. And it's that revelation that the church is built on and that the gates of hell cannot overpower. So that's why it's not enough to know about Jesus, but we have to have a personal encounter with him and walk in obedience to him. Okay, so Jesus wants to build his church. He wants to build it on the revelation of Christ in our lives. Now, I want to also share something with you called the divine order of truth. This is a little thing that I got from Winky Prattney, who is an um, excellent Bible teacher. This is called the divine order of truth. And there's three steps to this. The first step is revelation, and that is that God speaks. And when I say God speaks, I mean that God can speak to you through his word. It may be an audible voice, although I don't know very many people that have been spoken to God audibly. It may just be a moment of inspiration. It might be through a vision. It might be through the the small voice that guides us. In whatever way God would speak, God will quicken something to you, and you know that this is for me. This is something that God has made clear to me. How many of you have had that experience? You know that God has made something real to you. Okay, so that's what revelation is. See, that's something for Rick, and God goes, and anoints it, and Rick goes, wow, you know, this is from God. You know, and he realizes it's, it's something of life from God. So that's the first order of truth. God makes something real to us. The second or the second level is our response to that truth. See, we cannot sit by passively and hear truth, but truth always demands a response. Truth always demands a response. And you know why? That when you witness and share with people, like when 
Uh, one of us would write a letter in the exponent or, or, or leave a track with someone. Do you know that, that people just cannot pass that off and just go, oh, well, but what happens? They either begin to submit to it and they say, well, well tell me more. I, I'm interested in this. Or what do they do? They get mad, don't they? See, they, they say, get, ah, get that stuff out of here. See, truth always demands a response. It always demands uh, a, a response of some kind. People cannot be passive to the word of God going forth. And that's why with, with witnessing and the preaching of the gospel, always there's always controversy associated with that because it stirs people's lives up. Truth, just by its nature, demands a response one way or the other. Okay. Now, when we... First of all, not when you get knowledge, that equals responsibility. When something is revealed to you, then you are responsible to live it out. So with knowledge comes the responsibility of doing it. And there's two possible responses. The first is responsibility accepted. And that means that we, we are willing to do what God has spoken to us. And so God speaks to Rick and he tells Rick, now, I don't want you stealing cookies anymore. Okay, and so Rick repents of stealing cookies, and he says, Lord, I, I want to align myself with your word. I want to be like you, and I want to stop stealing cookies. Then you've responded, see, in, 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 uh, to the revelation that's come. And when you do that, then you're going to get further light and understanding. And see, when we respond to truth, then God holds us, um, he counts us worthy that he would reveal something else to us. But if we don't reveal the first, excuse me, if we don't do the first thing, see, then God can't give us another thing until we do the first thing that he's told us to do. John seven seventeen illustrates this principle. Jesus said, if any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. So the man that is willing to do the will of God as he does the will of God, then it's confirmed to him that this is the right way to go. This is indeed is the word of God. And this principle is also illustrated, illustrated in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Romans 2, 17 through 20. Okay, it says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. So that's the blessing of, of, of having the law. See, God is or Paul is speaking here to what's the advantage of being a Jew. And these are all the, the reasons why it was a good thing to have the law, because they became witnesses of, of God, of Jehovah God, in the way that they live their lives out. Now, when responsibility is rejected, this is the other way. See, God can reveal something to us, and we can reject that responsibility. And when we, re when we reject the responsibility, then guilt and judgment come upon our lives. We, we, find, we, we, we feel guilt for not obeying what God spoke to us. And that's what verses 21 through 24 of Romans chapter 2 says. It says, you therefore who teach one another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, 
Through your breaking of the law, you dishonor God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as is as it is written. So Paul's criticism of the Jews was that they were proud that they knew the law. But what was the problem? They didn't live by it. See, they were religious in the sense that they they made all these declarations, but they didn't live it themselves. And therefore, they made a mockery of the Old Testament law. And what's the biggest criticism of Christianity that you hear today from non-Christians? Hypocrites, don't you? You talk about what's right and wrong, and yet your life doesn't live up to it. See, that's the, well, that's the consequences. When we hear the truth and don't obey it, we, we make, we actually blaspheme the name of Jesus among non-Christians because of our disobedience. Our lives ought to match up to the best of our ability. Of course, we won't be perfect in the ultimate sense, but we can have that desire to do what is right. So we can say, Lord, as much as I know how, I'm going to conform my life to your law. And if you've said not to steal cookies, I'm going to do my best not to steal cookies. Now, I may fail a few times, but the intent of my heart is, Lord, I want to come to the place where I don't steal cookies anymore. See, it's the intent of my heart wanting to serve God and wanting to obey him. Matthew 23, Jesus speaks some very very hard and, and very actually very, very stern things to the Pharisees. Matthew, Matthew 23, 1 through 3. Then Jesus spoke to his disciples, or to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have, have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do all they tell you to do. Therefore, all they tell you to do, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. This is a heavy indictment against the religious leaders of, of Jesus' time because they sat themselves in the chair of Moses. They, they, they claimed the same position that Moses had, and yet Moses lived what he taught. See, Moses wasn't a hypocrite, but these people were hypocrites. And this has been the basic problem of religion all throughout the ages is people don't obey what they know to do. And instead of being right with God and, and observing his commandments, we get all religious and put on this religious facade that we're really something that we're not. And so in, in that sense, religion becomes the enemy of, of true relationship with God and true Christianity. And we need to be careful that we're not falling into the same trap. Now, after we have had a revelation from God and hopefully we've responded rightly to that revelation, then the third step happens and that's that we get understanding. Then God begins to explain to us, and we, we begin in a small way to understand the ways of God. So God speaks you to, to you. Do you do you do something? It doesn't make a lot of sense, and you go, Wow, Lord, this really, this really doesn't uh, make any sense to me. But you do it in faith, knowing that God's a good God. He loves you. He's not going to lead you astray. You do it. Then after you do it, then God teaches it, and then he shows you. Now, this is why I had you do that. And you go, oh, wow, Lord, that was really neat. I didn't know anything about that. You know, and, and, and there's illustrations in our lives that, we, that could bear that out. But notice, the understanding only comes after you obey. If you wait to understand before you obey, you'll never, you'll never obey God. Because many times God asks us to do what would to the natural man seem like foolish things. You understand that? Sometimes God asks us to do foolish things. 
foolish to our natural minds. But as if we are committed to doing the will of God and we do it, and even if we're willing to be a fool for Christ, then after we've obeyed, then God will give us understanding. In Proverbs 4, 7, it says, get wisdom and get knowledge, but with all you're getting, get understanding. Knowledge is the what, wisdom is the how, and understanding is the why. And all those three ingredients are necessary, but especially the why. And God wants us to know him and to know his ways so that we begin to understand why God tells us to do certain things. So all inner authority in your life is going to come from your experience of obeying God. See, your your authority, any authority that you would have in God does not come from a from a from an ecclesiastical position. Okay, let me explain that. Just because I am the pastor of such and such a denomination and I hold a certain paper or a uh, like a degree or something does not give me authority in God's kingdom. What gives me authority in God's kingdom is that I have done the will of God and I have obeyed God from the heart. So just because a man has uh, has a certain thing that says he's a pastor does not necessarily mean that he has the anointing of God on his life. And just because I point to Tom and I say, okay, Tom, you're going to be a core group leader. Does that necessarily make him a core group leader? Not unless he has the heart for it. See, and that's the God's work, the heart. And if he's obeyed God and responded to God, then indeed he will become a, a core group leader like we have in Maranatha. Or like an elder. If I say, okay, Randy, we're going to put a little tag on you and we're going to call you Elder Wilson. Does that really make you an elder? Say it doesn't. Just the outward stamp does not do it. But if you have obeyed God and God has brought you to that place, then you'll be an elder indeed and and people will recognize it. And even if people don't accept you and put the tag on you, you will still be one because you'll be doing the works of an elder. And that's the way it is in God's kingdom. See, it's got to be worked in our lives first. Ezra 7.10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra, first of all, studied the law, then he practiced it, he, he made it applicable to his own life, and then he taught it to other people. Make sure that you're living something before you start teaching it to someone else. Teach yourself first, then when you're gaining some measure of victory, then you can go and share that with someone else. We get religious when we we teach other people to do things that we're not doing ourselves. That's what we get into the hypocrisy of religion. Therefore, I encourage you to pray the prayers once again that we talked about in the Knowing God lecture of Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, or Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, or the one in Colossians 1. Pray those prayers that, God, you reveal yourself to me. Make yourself known to me. But with that revelation, there's always going to become acts of obedience. See, God will require things of you. And if you will respond rightly to what God tells you to do, then, then, you're, then you'll understand more and more of his kingdom. And that understanding will be an ongoing understanding, and you'll understand more and more as time goes on. Well, tonight we want to talk about the justice of God. This is another of my favorite topics to talk about in, with regard to God. The class syllabus says this. It says, God is one judge that can never be bribed or forced into an unfair decision. The judgment day will declare to all the universe that God is totally just in all of his dealings with man. You know, you know why you can't bribe God? 
You can't bribe God because he owns everything anyway. And you can't twist his arm because he's too powerful. He's not, not, not one of us are big enough to twist God's arm. So God is set apart as the supreme judge of the universe. And ultimately, justice will prevail in the universe. It doesn't appear that way now because there's much injustice going on in the world and has been throughout the history of man. But we have the guarantee from the scripture that one day justice will ultimately prevail. Now let's define what justice is. Justice means to be right, to be righteous, to be equitable in action and judgment, to be fair and impartial. That's what that means. When we think of God as being just, we think of him as being equitable fair and impartial. In other words, God doesn't have favorites. He doesn't treat some people with certain favor and other people with lesser favor. But God is absolutely fair in his dealings. And God always plays by the rules, as it were. He's never going to violate the rules of of fairness and justice. He always is going to be absolutely fair in everything that he does. In contrast to this, injustice would be when you would violate someone's rights and it would be the opposite of all these things above. Instead of to be right, it would be to, to be wrong. It would The opposite of justice would, would be to in, be unequitable in action and judgment, to be unfair, and to be partial, showing favoritism. Like in, in, a, in a game where someone, where the man is refereeing the game, and the, the referee is for one team. So he calls a bunch of fouls on, on the one team that he's against. Because he doesn't like the team and everybody boo, hiss, and they don't like it at all. Because why? The sense of justice is being violated. And people, all of us get upset when that natural sense of justice is violated. No one can point a finger at God and rightly say that he is not fair, just, and impartial. No one can rightly point their finger at God and accuse him of being unjust. Because he's just in everything that his that he does. Let, let, let's look at some scriptures that affirm this. Revelation fifteen three. This is part of of a song of a song of Moses, and we get a, again we get a peek into heaven in the book of Revelation, and we see a mass and multitude of people singing songs, and they're singing this song of Moses. And here's what they declare: They declare, "Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty." Righteous and true are thy, are thy ways, thou king of the nations. And what is happening as the people are singing the song of Moses, all the saints in heaven, is that the seven bowls of wrath, which are the final judgments of God on the earth before the climax of history, these seven terrible bowls of judgment are being poured out on the earth. And you can read those in, in Revelation 15 and 16. And you, you find things like a third of the earth being burned and all the water turning to wormwood and the ocean turning into blood and just, you know, incredible devastations happening. And yet in the face of that, all the saints in heaven declare that God is righteous and true, and he's totally justified in, in, in justice doing what he's doing. In Psalms 18 and verse 30, it says, As for God, his way is blameless. As for God, his way is blameless. Blameless means to be without blame. Now, you need to know that when you begin to go through the dealings of God in your life. You need to know that when God starts putting his finger on things in your life and allowing circumstances to come into your life, you need to know that God is blameless 
And we never have just cause to turn and point our finger at God and say, God, you really don't love me. Or God, you're really not just to me. Because his word declares that he's just and that he's loving in everything that we do. And one of the real tests in our lives is to, when we get into the dealings of God, remember I said that it's, it's in the pressure situations that we really learn what our theology is. See, when, 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 when things are going good, we say, oh, yeah, God's love. And sure, he's just and fair to me. But, but let you uh, get a bad grade or get an unfair grade or let you, you lose your job. And then what's really in your heart will start coming out. See, it's in the crucible of testing that we, we really discover what we really think about God. And that's when the test of faith comes is that we lose our job. There's no money at the unemployment office. Is God still just to us? And if we start murmuring and start saying, oh, God, you know, you rascal, you can't trust you, you know, see what really is in our hearts will begin to come out. And so you need to know that God is blameless. And it's a real delight to God's heart that when he is allowing trials and things to come into your life, that he can look down from heaven and you're still saying that, God, I don't understand this, but I know that you're just and I know that you're loving even though the circumstances would say differently, I still know who you are, and I still affirm that you are the God that the Word says that you are. See, that's where real faith is and where real trust in the character of God comes, is that you don't let circumstances dictate who God is, but you know who God is, and you realize that God's going to, all this stuff is going to come out in the wash, and that eventually God is going to be vindicated, and you'll be able to stand and say, yep, I knew God was just in all this. And I, I persevered through the trial to see it come out. We'll give some examples of that. Psalms 145 and, se- and verse 17 says, The Lord is just in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. His justice is coupled with kindness. Deuteronomy 32.4. This is one of Moses' um, declarations about God. And it's one of my favorites. It goes, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness without injustice, righteous and upright is he. The rock, his work is perfect. And we are his work. That means he has done a perfect job with us. He has done a perfect job with you and he has given you, he's made you to be the way he wants you to be. One of the things we need to guard ourselves from is looking at other people and accuse God of being unjust. Well, God, if you really would have loved me, you'd have made me more like Vern, you know. You didn't really love me because you made me to be me and you didn't let me be like Tom, you know. You didn't let my hair be like Carol's, you know, or you didn't let my nose be like Dave's or whatever other things we start comparing ourselves. And, And so we need to guard ourselves that we're not comparing and looking at someone else and say, boy, you sure made Steve smart. And boy, what kind of IQ did you give me? You know, God, you're not fair at all. So we need to guard ourselves that we're not comparing ourselves and saying, God, you're really not very fair because God is fair. And we need to affirm that. The greatest crime in the universe is the crime of slandering God and saying things about God that are not true. That is a monstrous crime. And when we call God unjust, we are slandering the most important and the most fair being in the whole universe, aren't we? That's really what we're doing when we start murmuring and complaining and saying, well, God, you know, you sure aren't treating me very good. See, we're really slandering his name. We're, 
We're slandering and saying that he really isn't loving and he really isn't just. Psalm 73 is a psalm that Asaph wrote. And it's so humorous because so many times we get into the situation that, that Asaph got into. And I want to read that in, in almost all of its entirety tonight. Psalm 73. Here's what Asaph says. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and the garment of violence covers them. Their eye, their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, this, his people return to this place, and the waters of, the, of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and are always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I have been stricken all the day long and chastened every morning. Now you hear Asaph, he's getting into a, a, a pity party here. And he's looking at the wicked and saying, wow, you know, God never deals with them. And poor woe is me. And here, you know, I'd be suffering for Jesus. And, you know, and he's getting it. He's really pained and anguished. And the basic question here that's being raised is the justice of God. Is God really just? And that's what, see, that's what he's struggling with here. And he's questioning God's justice. Now, in verse 16, it says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. In other words, he was really bummed out. He was really bummed out about this whole thing. But here's what he did. In verse 17, it says, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places, Thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. And so as Asaph went into prayer and he went into the presence of God, then he realized that God's going to deal with every person and no one's going to pull any fast ones off on God. That every person will receive justice from the throne of God. And when he saw that, then he was able to get his eyes back on God and realize that God's a just God. Therefore, he didn't have to worry about the wicked. God would take care of, him, of them and God would take care of him. So see, the thing is getting our eyes back on the Lord and realizing that God's going to take care of everybody. People may, th may get away with things now, but in the eternal sense, they won't. No one will get by with anything because every man will be rewarded according to his own deeds. So testing, again, is an opportunity to declare who God is. Times of testing, when we get in the crucible of testing, that's the time when we can really declare in the face of bad circumstances who God is. In verse 25 of the same psalm, Asaph says, Who have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. For thou hast destroyed all those who are, who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell, that I may tell of all thy works. As here Asaph is affirming his relationship with God. And he says, who, who have I in heaven but thee? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides thee. So David, or um, Asaph, affirmed once again the value of God's justice and the value of his, his equity. You find this in the life of David. You know, you read the Psalms and you, you read, you know, where David is being chased by this army or this king and this thing is happening to him. And he, he's crying out to God and he's saying, oh, God, my enemies are surrounding me. They're going to get me. Lord, what am I going to do? And he goes on and on and prays this way. And yet towards the end of the Psalm, he, he starts declaring, yet, Lord, you are my strength. You are my refuge, and through you I can run through a troop and leap over walls. And see, David always focuses back on God and realizes that through our God we shall do valiantly, like we sing the chorus that says that. And see, David always focused back on who the Lord was, and he turned the negative circumstances into a position and an opportunity for God to bring victory. We can say that even in judgment, God is just. That even in judgment, God is just. In Psalms 19 and verse 9, it says that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God is the moral governor of the universe. God has the responsibility of governing the universe and governing the affairs of history. And God, at certain times when he deems necessary... And because he has the whole picture, he knows when this is appropriate. God has brought judgments on certain civilizations. God, in the Old Testament, many times brought judgments on Israel by allowing them to go cap into captivity under the hands of other nations. And see, the affairs of nations are, are determined by God. And God is the moral governor of the universe. And there are times when God allows certain judgments to come upon nations. You ever wonder why nations come and go? You know, why does a nation exist for a period of time, <laughs> years or centuries, and then all of a sudden they go away? It's, it's, it's God is the moral governor of the universe, and, and he has his hand, and he is governing the affairs of men. In Revelation 16, verses 4 through 21, we read the scripture where as these judgments are coming, once again, all of heaven is amening God's justice. They're all declaring just and righteous is God as he is bringing justice about in the earth. You can read that in Revelation 16. Now, bitterness grows when we believe that God is unjust. One of the roots of bitterness that would grow up in our lives is the thought that God really isn't fair to me. And we get bitter about it. We, we, don't, we, we get angry, we resent God, and then we, it grows into a root of bitterness. And we get bitter at God because we don't believe that he's going to be just and fair to us. We, but we believe that we've gotten the raw deal, the short end of the stick from God. That's a lie of Satan because the scripture declares, as we're reading over and over, that God is always just and he's always fair in everything that he does. Revelation 19 verses 1 and 2 is the same, same picture. And when God deals with sin in the earth, it is just like a doctor that is dealing with cancer. When you 
find out you have cancer, many times they operate, don't they? And they remove part, the part of the body that has gone out of control and that, has, that is threatening the health of the whole body. And so many times when they, when they treat cancer, they will cut it out and they'll go in and operate and remove as much of the cancerous growth as they possibly can so that the body can go on living. And that's the way God's judgments are. God's, God many times judges a certain pocket of sin, like a pocket of cancer, where people have gotten so reprobate and so wicked that that wickedness has the potential of ruining the whole earth, that God will, in love and in justice, remove that, that people from the face of the earth so that, so, you know, so that the rest of the, of the civilization and the rest of the people on the earth can go on. See, God's always judging and he's always dealing with man on the basis of the whole picture. But remember that even when severe and harsh things happen, it, always, it is always done in justice. And we, we, we always have to understand that, that when God judges and when he brings judgment, it is always done in fairness. It's never done out of vindictive anger or God is just somehow angered and starts throwing lightning bolts at will at people or at nations. It's always done in utter fairness. Now, we don't see the whole picture, so we don't understand why God, why God does all these things. But we, have to, but we need to believe and have confidence that he is just in what he does. Steve? Um. What about the time when Moses talked God out of fighting Israel and destroying them? Like God was saying, well, it, I finally, it's finally got to me. I'm just going to destroy him. And Moses uh, talked to him. How does that fit in with God's judgment being always out of um, fairness and not out of anger? Yes. Or maybe if you could qualify. Okay. We, when we look at the mercy of God next week, we will see that God is always willing to show mercy. And as, as there are intercessions and prayers raised by us to, to God on behalf of people, that releases God to show mercy. See, it's still fair that God would have destroyed them because, uh, uh, because of the way they were acting and everything. But see, Moses pled with God and pled his mercy. And so God pardoned them and gave them another chance. See? And that was because of the intervention of, of Moses' prayers. So, see, the mercy didn't violate or wasn't in opposition to the justice. It, God was able to show mercy because Moses interceded and prayed, see. Because Moses prayed and, and, and interceded, there was another dimension that, that, that entered the problem or entered the situation. And so God could wisely show mercy. I think after next week, um, you'll, you'll be more clearer on that concept as we look at God's mercy. Let's look at a couple other scriptures here. Psalms 89, verses 14 and 15. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of thy confidence or thy countenance. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's throne. Everything that God does is based on rightness and justice. Isn't that encouraging? The whole kingdom of God is based on fairness and justice. And the joyful sound that, that we respond, you know, he talks here about the joyful, the, how blessed are the people that know the joyful sound. The joyful sound is the song of love and equity. It's the song of justice and fairness. Also, God doesn't make any mistakes. God's not a, just, a judge that makes mistakes, you know. There'll be no mistakes in God's judgment because he judges fairly and righteously. Psalms 99 and verse 4. I want to read this from the Living Bible. This is really neat. 
It says, this mighty king is determined to give justice. Fairness is the touchstone of everything he does. He gives justice throughout Israel. I like that. Fairness is the touchstone of everything that he does. Everything God does is is just bleached with fairness. I want you to think of some of the examples of kings and rulers in history. We have seen some pretty wicked examples, haven't we, of rulers that have risen up and not ruled righteously and have not ruled justly. Look at Hitler murdering a whole segment of population because he, he wanted the German race to be the superior race. See, God would will never rule in that way because he's a just judge. Think of Henry VIII and some of the things that he did or any leader you want to pick in history. Many of them were unrighteous, and instead of ruling for the sake of justice, they ruled for their own gain and for the detriment of the people that were under them. I wonder, how many of you saw the movie Justice for All? It was a movie about two years ago. That movie really pained me because what the movie was was making a – a statement about was the, the um, decline of justice in America. And the movie showed the the inner workings of some lawyers and a, a crooked judge who was getting paid off by a, a lot of people. And this judge was laying huge sentences on people like for traffic violations or simple misdemeanors and murderers and, and gross violations of law were going by unpunished. And it just showed the inner workings of all this bribery and corruption that was going on. And it just made a mockery of justice. And in a, in a large degree, that is happening in our land today. Uh, tremendous eroding of justice. And there, there is very little justice. If you have money, that'll buy you justice. But there's no justice for the common, for the poor, for the person that doesn't have any economic leverage. And that's pretty much the way the world is right now and, and has been largely. And, it's, and God wants us to be those who would stand up for justice. Did any of you see the, the movie To Kill a Mockingbird? It's about 20 years old. Yeah, it's a tremendous – the movie is a tremendous movie. And uh, I think it was Kirk Douglas was the star in the movie and Gregory Peck, yeah. And it was so neat in the movie where he was defending a black man, which was unheard of in the South for a white white lawyer to defend a black man. But he defended him and he knew he was innocent and and he laid out this impeccable defense and he showed where – um, you know, the, the witnesses and, and the people that had uh, tried to accuse this black man of, of uh, committing adultery with this, with, this white, with this young white lady, he showed just conclusively where they were wrong. And yet the jury came back and, 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 and with the verdict of guilty and, oh, it just, you know, just shattered you because he proved beyond a doubt. And yet they were, they were all racially prejudiced and, and under, under the pressure of the town and all the peer pressure, they, they yielded to it and they didn't yield a just decision. And, and, and you know, when, when, the, when the juror, the head of the juror spoke the verdict, the judge pronounced sentence and, and the, the black guy was taken off and, and the arrogant lawyers for the other side, the white guys, you know, they were real arrogant about it and they were, they were saying, ha, we have this system rigged, you'll never win. That was their spirit. And they, they kind of went out joking and slapping each other on the back. And um, Gregory Peck, the lawyer, just stood there. And, you know, you could just tell his heart was broken that, that there hadn't been justice rendered. And all the black people had to sit up in the balcony of the courtroom. They weren't even allowed down on the floor. And every, all the white people had left, and he was still there. And, and, and Gregory Peck walked out, and all the black people – 
they stood up in recognition that, you know, he was really standing for justice. It was just a, such a touching part of the movie because he had, he had stood for what was right. And even though the system had rendered a wrong verdict, the folk, the people, those black people knew that he had, had stood for justice and they honored him for that. And that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to stand for what is right. Yes, Mer. Um, what would that mean in, in like every day today? Uh, for instance, on the news the other night where a uh, judge ordered a church to be locked up except for Sundays and Wednesdays for services because they were trying to have a, a school which they didn't have stated uh, certified teachers or something. Uh, you know, what, what do we do nowadays to ensure justice? I mean, are you, should we, you know, go up and down to the, the courthouse and, and pick it? Or, you know, what, do you see what I'm Yes, I do, and I'm, I'm going to address that in a minute. Okay. Okay, going on in the outline here, a revelation of God's justice enables us to endure injustice at the hands of men. As we have a revelation that God is a just ruler in the universe and he's just to us, then that will enable us to endure injustice at the hands of men. In America, we have the appeal system. If you go to court and you don't like the verdict that you get here down in the, in the Bozeman court, what, do, what can you do? You can appeal it to the state court, to the state Supreme Court. If you take it there and, and you don't like it, you can appeal it to a federal district court, to an appellate court. And uh, there's eight districts in, in, in the United States. And if they hear, will agree to hear your case, you can take it to that court. And if you don't like the decision that's made there, you can appeal to the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. And if they agree, they will hear your case. And you can take your case all the way to the Supreme Court. You know, if you know if you have the money and the desire and, and the cause to do so. Now, what we have as Christians is we have direct access to the highest authority in the universe, and that's the throne of God. And we always have access to appeal our case before God through prayer. And we always have access to the throne of God. And when men wrong us, we always have access to God's court that his will would be done and that as we trust him, his justice can be done in our lives. Jesus is our model of this, and we find this in 1 Peter 2. 18 through 23. First Peter 2, 18 through 23. It says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor with God if for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And here we see Jesus as, as, as he's carrying his cross to, to his, his final place of crucifixion. 
and and even on the cross, people are hurling abuses and accusations, and um, and and laying all of these unfair things on him. And yet Jesus didn't cry out, "Unjust, unjust! I don't deserve this. I was without sin. You're the ones that deserve all this." Jesus didn't do that. But what did he do? He trusted the Father, and he said. I appeal to the highest court in the universe. I appeal to my father's throne and he will bring about justice in his time and in his way. And so when we realize that we have access to God's court of appeals, we can lay our personal right to justice down and we can trust say, and when, when there's injustice done to us, we appeal to God and we say, Lord, I lay this situation at your feet and may your will be done. Because we know in the long run that God will be just to us. God will reward us according to our deeds. So that way we don't have to go and demand justice for ourselves, but we can submit ourselves to the will of God and allow God to vindicate us. Now that's when it has to do with our own personal rights and our own personal justice. First Peter 3.18, the next chapter over. It says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And the world needs to see the spirit of Christ, the same spirit that bore the sins of the world and appealed to God for his justice to be worked out. The world needs to see the spirit of Christ worked out in our lives. The, the, the culture that we live in today is demanding rights, aren't they? People are demanding rights for this, demanding rights for that. There was a letter in the Exponent Friday of some guy who didn't get the job that he thought he should. And he wrote this big gripe letter about the, the, the people at Hannon Hall, the, the, the administrators in there. And so he's standing up and saying, I didn't get my rights. And he's pleading his own cause before society. As a Christian, we need not do that. We can appeal to God. But what it means, it means a real death to our desires. How many of you have been cheated in a grade? Cheated in a grade that you really deserved. And be due to the, the, the determination of the teacher, maybe didn't like you or something, you got a lesser grade. And yet at that point you have a choice. Are you going to raise a big stink about it? Or are you going to say, okay, Lord, I submit this to you. You see the injustice and I'm going to allow you to vindicate me in your way. That's the way Jesus did it. And I think that's the way as Christians we need to go. Maybe you get cheated in some money. Maybe a guy doesn't pay you the money he owes you. Are you going to allow resentment and bitterness and anger to rise up in your heart? Or are you going to say, okay, Lord, you see what's happened here. I appeal to you and I allow you to vindicate me and you'll work this thing out. Say God will be just to you in his way and his time and God will He'll work things out. That's what's neat about trusting God is you don't have to go and fight your own battles. You can allow God to be your vindicator. Or how about you didn't get a job? You didn't get the job that you thought that you should. Are you going to appeal to God? And are you going to let him vindicate you? As, as we really see that God is just, we'll be able to relax and we'll be able to allow God to fight our own battles. And that's a real place of security that God wants us to come to. And boy, we our society is so bent on getting our rights, you know. Get your rights. Stand up for all, you know, stand up and get all that you can. Take them to court if they don't like it, you know. Take them to court and make them give you a job. Just, you know, just asinine things happen in our culture today. 
And it's just contrary to the spirit of Christ. And if we understand God's justice, we'll lay our rights down and we'll say, okay, Lord, I appeal to your throne. Tom. This is a quick story about uh, taking people to court. I, I heard on the radio the other day, a small boy was standing in his driveway. His mother ran over his foot with the car. And the little boy sued his mother and won the case. <laughs> seriously, he sued his own mother and won the case. So that's ridiculous. That's, that is just that's cause for weeping, isn't it? That's how sad our society. No love. Yeah, that, that's the kind of things that are happening today. And boy, if we're going to be in menace, if we're going to reveal the Christ likeness and Christ spirit, we've got to be willing to accept injustice and allow God to move and vindicate us. And boy, he will. That's a powerful things happen when we submit our own rights to the Lord. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is addressing this issue of suing each other. And I'm just briefly going to read it. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the saints are judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? If you then have law courts dealing with dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you, is it so that there is not one among you? one wise man who will be able to decide between brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud and that your brethren. See, Paul is saying here, he says, you've blown it. You know, you win the case and you've lost the you've lost the battle as far as being a witness to the world. See, if you're going to take your brother to court to get money out of him or to to get your way, you've lost the whole spirit of the gospel. You know, Paul says you've missed the boat. You might win the case, but you you've lost your life with God. So you've lost your witness. See, what would Jesus do? He just as as we read, he submitted his life to the father. And uh, there is a place for. For, for lawsuits in the sense where, where justice of whole bunches of people are involved. But when it's your, your, you know, like, you know, suing your neighbor because his tree fell on your property, it's just insane. There's just no place for that at all. And, and Christians defrauding one another, trying to rip each other off, well, that really ruins the, the witness of the gospel. And that's what Paul is coming against here. Matthew 5.40, Jesus said, if anyone wants to sue you, let him take your shirt and give him your coat also. So if somebody wants to sue you, give him what he wants and give him a little more. That's what that's the, that's God's heart towards that kind of activity. Boy, that's kind of a tough one to live, isn't it? <laughs> but that's what God says. In Genesis chapter 38, 38 through 40, 37 through 48, we're not going to read this tonight, but I want you to sometime to read this beautiful account. You know the story of Joseph, and he learned God's justice. Joseph was true, really un, un, unjustly treated, and yet he knew God was in control of things, and he kept his heart right. Joseph was a young boy. He was the favorite son, and his brothers were jealous with, of him already, but he began having some dreams and visions. And the dreams were that you know his, his family and even his parents were going to come down and bow before him. 
And he started telling his brothers these revelations, and they didn't get off on it at all. And it's because, you know, the favorite son, he had this uh, multicolored coat, and, and then he was getting all these dreams and visions, and he was going and telling them how you're going to come down and bow down to me. God gave me a vision, and boy, they just didn't get off on this at all. In fact, it got so bad that they were going to kill their – they were out in the field, and they were going to kill their brother. And Reuben was the only one of his brothers that had any conscience at all, and he said, well, man, we can't kill our own brother. So here's what let's do. Let's sell him to this uh, – this uh, caravan that's coming through the desert here. And so they sold him into slavery. And and then they took a goat and killed him and put the blood on the coat and took it back to Joseph and and said, hey, you know, a a wild animal must have gotten your your son. So that that was the end of Joseph. And so here's Joseph. Imagine him on that slave train, a slave sold into captivity and saying, well, thanks, God. Here you give me these dreams and visions about people bowing down before me. And here I'm a slave. And yet, see, Joseph learned that God had a purpose for this. So he submitted to it. He got down to the, he was sold to this guy named Potiphar. And and instead of resenting and saying, God, why do you have me here? He served as unto the Lord. And he became, uh, he rose in favor with Potiphar. And finally, Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household. And he was carrying forth his affairs. And Potiphar's wife had some uh, mischievous eyes for him and kept making eyes at him and one day she was in there and saying, you know, come on, let's let's go to bed. And Joseph was a righteous man. He said, no way. I'm not going to do that. It's against the law of my God. And so finally she reaches out and grabs his toga. And, of course, you know, he, he ran off naked and she screamed, rape, rape. And, uh, of course, he got thrown in jail again because of the, uh, you know, everybody thought, well, this guy, the slave tried to rape me. So here's Joseph back in prison again. And in prison, he serves God. He, he works through the bitterness. He works through the unforgiveness. And he realized that somehow God's got to be in this. And he was trusting God that he would fulfill the dreams and the visions that he had given him. And it was something like 17 years later that uh, he interpreted some dreams for two guys in the prison. And after they got out, one of them remembered as Pharaoh was having some dreams, he said, I remember there was a guy back in prison that interpreted my dream. And so they brought him up, and he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh made him prime minister of Egypt. One moment he was in the prison, next prison, next moment he was prime minister of the greatest kingdom on the earth at that time. He's the prime minister of Egypt. So God exalted him. And then the, the story of how his brothers got into famine, and they came down and had to buy food from him. And, and uh, you read the story. It's really a touching story of forgiveness. And in Genesis 45, verses 5 through 7, we hear Joseph, and after, after working through all the potential self-pity and bitterness, he worked it through, and he, he forgave, and he realized that God was still on the throne, and he appealed to the Lord. And here's what, the, this is a beautiful declaration of a man of faith. Verses 5 through 7, and he's comforting his brothers because when his brothers found out that this is Joseph, they all went, oh, no, because they, they thought, oh, boy, he is going to get us because he's the king. And now we're we're his captives. And then we sold him into slavery. And boy, is he going to get us now? And see, Joseph knew the character of Christ. He, he learned the character of God. And here's what he says. He says, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. See, God was in all that. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me here before you to to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. 
And here Joseph saw the hand of God in everything that happened to him. And that's what you need to do. You, when, when bad things or potentially negative things come into your life, you need to see that God's hand's in it. God's hand is in it. And you need to trust his justice because the circumstances may not bear it out. But, but if you trust in God's justice, you'll be able to go through them. I was almost engaged to a girl after I, I became a Christian. About, I was about four years old in the Lord. And I met this girl, and, and I, I really felt God had brought us together providentially, and we we met each other, and we really struck up a good friendship and a good relationship. And I was convinced that, that this was the girl that I was to marry. And we decided that we would just hold our relationship before we made any commitments. We met in February, and we decided to wait over the summer just to make sure it was is really of the Lord. And over the summer, she got cold feet and decided that she didn't want to get married. And uh, when when we were in different uh, parts of the state and she wasn't here in Bozeman anymore, and uh, she just told me that, you know, it just wasn't going to work and she wasn't really free to communicate. And that really bothered me. And it was really hard for me for several months after that because I, I didn't understand why things had fallen apart. Um, I was really tempted to question God's justice and thank God, you know, you're really not fair in this matter. And yet I clung to the fact that, God, you're just and good's got to come out of this, even though I felt um, really emotionally at odds with the whole situation. It was a very painful couple of months that I went through, but I held on to God's justice. And finally, you know, I, I was able to work it through and be free with it and to realize, well, God's got other plans. And, yeah, he's still on the throne. He's still a good God. And I was, you know, able to go on serving the Lord. And it was uh, about a year later that I met Joy, and I, now I realize what, what he had in mind. I'm really glad that I didn't allow a root of bitterness to grow up, or what would have been worse, to try to work things out in the flesh and probably potentially marry the person that maybe God didn't have in mind for me. And I probably could have done that, you know, taken things into my own hands, and it probably would have not been a good, as good a situation as I have now. And I really had to work through that thing of, is God really just? Is he going to be fair to me? And I'm really glad I did because he is fair. He is just. So there'll be situations like that that come into your lives. But trust him. Trust him. He's just. He's going to be fair. It may take some time, but he will ultimately be fair to you. And not only is he fair, but he's merciful. He gives us far more than we deserve. So not you don't just get an even swap with God. He just gives you an abundant. He gives you a cup that runs over. But in order to, to see his provision, you've got to walk through these trials and testings that God allows to come into your life. It isn't always peaches and cream walking with the Lord. Sometimes we get tossed into prison. Sometimes we get caught in some pretty devastating circumstances. But that's an opportunity see, to prove God. And it's through those circumstances that we really get to know God. Very uh, quickly, let's try to move ahead. The Old Testament upheld the concept of justice. You want to, Vern, you asked the question of how does this get worked out in practical life? The Old Testament is full of examples of the way we are to, to uphold justice. In Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25, is the scripture, an eye, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You've heard that quoted, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, that's the concept of justice. If you take out my eye, what's the fair thing for me to do? Take out your eye. See, it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Remember when you were little kids and you used to play the game, you know, boom, you hit someone, and what do they have to do back to you? 
or I'm going to hit you back. So boom, you know, so you go pow, pow. And the kid goes pow, pow. And you try to get one up on the guy, you know, so he doesn't get to get you back. So that's that. That's a concept of justice. And it's, it's a good concept. In Deuteronomy 4, I just want to really briefly try to cover some of these scriptures here. There's, well, this is a whole study in itself. And I would encourage you to, to get into some of the Old Testament law and you start seeing God's wisdom and his heart towards justice being upheld in the earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I, which I command you. And God said, don't add to it or take away because it's perfect. It's just. It's right. Just the way I've given it to you. Therefore, don't pervert it by taking things away or adding other things to it. It's perfect as I've given it to you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. That was a certain idol that they were worshiping. But you who have held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are going in, where you are entering in to possess it. So keep them and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now, where's the wisdom coming from? It's coming from the law. See, God set up a law of probably as close to a utopian society as is possible, this side of heaven. The Old Testament gave a plan that was incredible, it, and it touched every facet of life, and justice was woven right into the fabric of it. But because Israel did not obey it, their society fell apart, and God was not able to keep the covenant with them because of their disobedience. Verse 7 says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call upon him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? And see, God intended that as Israel would live out the commandments that God had given to them, that all the nations would start standing up and taking note, and they would come to Israel and find out, what have you guys got going here? We want to know why there's peace in your land. We want to know why there's no crime. We want to know why you can walk on, on your streets and people are happy and friendly. We want to know why the poor are taken care of in this nation. We want to know why all these things, why there isn't racial discrimination. See, God set up a perfect society if we would but obey it. There's tremendous wisdom in the Old Testament that we can live by today, the principles by which are applicable today. In Psalms 119 and verse 164, David said, Seven times a day I praise thee because of thy righteous ordinances. And in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, Paul talks about the use of the law and that the, the, the use of the law is simply like a tutor to, be, to bring us to Christ. See, God has given us his standard, and as we match our lives by the standard, we realize how far short of the standard we fall 
And it shows us that we need Christ. We need his mercy and we need his redemption. That's what the law does. We can't live by the law and just do good things. We never make it. But the law points out our deficiency and shows us, boy, we need a redeemer. And it it leads us right into the arms of Jesus who has died that we might be made righteous in the eyes of God. Galatians 3.24 is the verse that says, the law is the tutor that brings us to Christ. Some examples of justice, and I'll just really brief, briefly run through these, and why don't, why don't you take these and, and look, look them up on your own. We really won't have time to go through them tonight. In the book of Numbers, chapter 35, God sets up a, a system where there could be cities of refuge. When a murder was committed in Israel, there were certain cities that were set apart as cities of refuge. And that is that if you killed someone and went to the city of refuge, then the the person that was the, what was called the manslayer, and that would be the person that was going to vindicate the death of the person. For example, um, say I killed the next door neighbor's brother. Well, the next door neighbor's brother would come after me. See, there was no law enforcement thing. It was pretty much people vindicated um, the deaths of their own family and friends. It was like in the old West, you know, the old Western movies, a brother was after the outlaw who killed my brother. And he says, I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to kill you because you killed my brother. See, that's justice. And it was executed by the individual person. And so when the person went to this city of It was called a city of refuge. Then they would wait until there was a trial and the elders of the city would find out what really happened and then they would pass judgment according to the law that was given. In verse 12 of the same chapter, it said that they were to have a fair trial. In verses 16 and 17, it talked about if it was an intentional crime, like if the guy intentionally murdered the man, then he was to die automatically. If it was an unintentional crime, like he was cutting wood with an axe and the axe handle fell off and hit the guy in the head and killed him, then that was in a different category because that was not an intentional killing. Sounds like first-degree manslaughter and second-degree manslaughter that is true in our system today. Our system is so much taken right out of the scripture, all the principles. Verse 30, it says that no man was to be put to death on the basis of one witness. There had to be two or three witnesses. That is, so it just couldn't be my word against yours, and I couldn't say, well, Tom murdered, you know, so-and-so, therefore we kill him. No, there had to be, it had to be substantiated in, in truth and in, in law. So all these principles were given in justice. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 1 through 7, it talked about having an, an honest investigation. Don't just assume that everybody is telling the truth, but investigate, and, and they'll set up evidence and set up testimonies, do all these things. Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 21, same kind of things. It gave rules, and if it also said that if someone is a false witness, then he gets the same punishment as the man who is guilty. See, it's the clause of perjury. If you lie on the witness stand, in the Old Testament days, if you were lying, you got killed, you got the same punishment the guilty man got. And what do you think that did to per, to uh, witnesses? People didn't lie. Man, I'm not going to get killed. So see, it was a restraint towards justice. Restrain people from from you know perverting justice. And then in Exodus 23, you look and you can look at verses one through nine. Talks about not taking bribes for justice. And you know why the scripture says, "Do not take a bribe to pervert justice." The reason it says that it is that justice is more important than any amount of money. See, justice, the principle, eternal concept of justice is more important than any amount of money. And when you take a bribe, you are saying that 
$10,000 is more important than the eternal concept of justice. And if we see things from God's perspective, we won't pervert justice. Justice is far more important than any amount of money, and therefore we're not to be bribed by it. In Exodus 11 and 12, it says that when Israel left the land of Egypt after they had been in slavery for 400 years, God allowed them to plunder the land of Egypt, to take all the gold, silver, precious stones, and all the things of value. And so they, they really looted Egypt as they left, and they had tremendous wealth that they gathered from the nation. And actually, that was God's justice to Israel because Egypt had held them in slavery for 400 years, and God was just letting them collect on 400 years of back wages. See, God was executing his justice to Israel. In Second Chronicles chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, God sends a prophet to these men, and he speaks to them that you have been unrighteous, you have, you have not obeyed me, therefore I am going to allow the enemy to come in and capture you. And it says that the men responded in humility and they said, the Lord is righteous. The Lord's right. He, he deserve, we deserve this. We deserve to go into captivity. But they prayed and they humbled themselves before God. And God had mercy upon them. And they, they received some measure of deliverance. But see, they agree. Boy, the Lord is righteous. He's right. We have sinned. And they acknowledged that. And therefore, God was able to show them mercy. And then in Second Chronicles 16, verses 7 through 10, we find where King Asa did not respond rightly to God's justice. But when the prophet came and spoke to him, Asa threw the prophet in jail, and therefore the judgment of God came upon him in a strong way. In Genesis 18, this is beautiful. I wish we had time to go into these. Abraham stands on the basis of God's justice, and he makes intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah. Because God was came and visited Abraham one day. Abraham and Sarah fixed him some cake and fixed a goat for him, and they sat down and ate together. And God told Abraham that he was going to go down and see the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and see the wickedness there, and he was going to bring just judgment. And God told him, I'm going to destroy this, this whole area. And see, God, Abraham thought about his brother or his nephew Lot was over there. And, and so he, Abraham ventures out and he says, well, Lord, you know, you're just and you're not going to judge the righteous and the wicked together, are you? Far be it from the judge of the universe to do that. And, and so Abraham said, if you find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? And God says, I'll spare the city. And then he said, how about for 45? <laughs> and God, it got, he whittled him down to 10 people. Right? You know, I mean, God, see, he was, he, God was willing to show mercy. It's just like, Steve, what you were talking about. See, Abraham was, was pleading for mercy, and God's abundant in mercy. God said, if I can find 10 righteous people out of probably 200,000 people, I'll save the city. And he thought for sure, Lot and his family, there would be 10 of them, but there wasn't even 10 of them. There wasn't even 10 righteous people. And so God, he did deliver Lot and his family. Remember what happened to Lot's wife when, when they were being taken out? She looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. But God spared Lot and, and brought him out before judgment came. And then in Genesis 15, verses 12 and 16, it's a very interesting passage of Scripture where God speaks of the captivity that Israel would go into. They would go into Egypt for 400 years, and then they would come out, and then they would judge the wickedness of the nations in the land of Palestine. And God, real, God saw that they were not ripe for judgment at that point. But 400 years later, they would be ready for judgment, and God would use Israel as they would come into the land. He would use them to bring to execute judgment upon the wickedness that was in the land. And then in Revelation chapter 18, we see how the world system 
that is described as the harlot is ultimately going to be judged. And that's the economic system, I believe, that we're living under now. The whole unequal distribution of resources and the the harlotry and the the stuff that's going on in the world economic system, how, you know, we allow people to starve and yet the way we have all the affluence, that whole system, God is going to judge. In fact, you read, read about it in Revelation 17 and 18. It's a very severe judgment. And God will pay back. Just He will be just to to the to all of us who are in the world system. Okay, what is the personal application? Now that we've talked about God's justice, we know He's a just ruler. He desires us to be a just people. So we need to bring it down to personal application. The first principle that we need to apply is that we need to trust God's justice to us. We need to trust the fact that God is just to us. And that implies that we're not going to murmur and complain against God. But we're going to accept whatever comes across our lives as as being from God and being and since it's from God, he is going to be just to us. Romans 8:28, a familiar scripture says and God and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so when we realize that all things come from the hand of God, and by the way, those hands are nail-scarred hands, same, the same hands that died on the cross, and the same one that died on the cross is the one who allows all the circumstances to come into our lives. They come through his hands first. So they're nail-scarred hands. And when we realize that, we won't murmur at the, at the situations God allows us to be in. It's real easy to complain, isn't it? Complain about this, complain about that. And that's a sin, and it's a it's a despicable sin in the eyes of the Lord. You read in Exodus when the biggest sin of the people of Israel when they were out in the desert was their complaining, their incessant complaining about everything. And that's a that's a devastating sin. We need to be thanking God and not not complaining about our circumstances. We need to be content in wherever God's put us. Philippians four four says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice when it's good, rejoice when it's bad, but rejoice in the Lord. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it's, it's the will of God for us that we be thankful. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's God's will for you? Be thankful. Be thankful in everything that God allows across your path. All the trials that God allows in our lives are meant to result in gain for us, not loss. The trials are not meant to destroy us, but the trials have the eternal purpose of building us up. It's like a kind of spiritual weightlifting. When we oppose the, the temptations and when we're able to stand in the face of opposition, we're building our spiritual character up so that we're going to be more and more like Jesus. And so God allows trials not to tear us down, but they're always for our gain. And we'll see on the judgment day the tremendous gain that God intended. And the and the Father will always compensate for wounds that men would inflict upon you. The Father will always con- con- um, <laughs> will always uh, compensate for the wounds of men. See, the Father will always make it up to you, even if your father was a was uh, a rat fink. You know, if your father was not very good. God, the Father, will be a perfect father towards you. And no matter what your handicap, no matter what happens, God will make it up to you, see? God will be fair and just, and not only fair and just, but he'll be gracious to you. Yay. 
And then in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. It says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And see, this whole thing of taking your own revenge, plotting how you're going to get even with people, don't do that. Submit it to the highest court in the universe and let God deal. He's, he, God's able to execute vengeance far better than we are. Let, let God be your you take it to him. Let him be your lawyer. Lord, I'm going to t- turn this case over to you, and you you carry it out in whatever way you want to. And boy, God will do it. And God will do it in a redemptive way that will shake nations, that will shake our society. He'll do it, see, in a creative, beautiful way, whereas we do it in a destructive way. And you just need to let God be your lawyer. You let him fight your battles for you. And you just live with a clear conscience and a loving heart towards your enemies and and your your brothers and sisters alike. Okay, that's the first personal application. The second is be the example of justice to the world. We need to be just in all of our dealings while not demanding it for ourselves. But we need to be an example of justice to others. In Micah 6, 8, it says, He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God wants you to do what is right. He wants you to handle your finances in a fair and honorable sort of way. He wants you to have quality in your life. He wants you to do a day's work for a day's pay. He doesn't want you cheating your employer, but he wants you to be fair in all that you do. And if you contract to do a job for someone, do it right. Do it well. See, be just in all of your dealings. Don't try to rip people off. Don't try to cheat your fellow man. But be just in everything that you do. And that touches, see, this is part, Vern, of touching every practical aspect of our lives. We are fair with people. We're up front with them. We don't try to rip them off and to make a fast buck off them. Because they're, our hu- they're fellow human beings. And they're to be loved and cared for. So we are to be the example of justice. Proverbs 3.21, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. Proverbs 11.1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. A false balance is a balance that, you know, doesn't give you a gallon of gas for, you know, a dollar thirty. You know, it only gives you nine-tenths of a gallon or, you know... It's, it's the gold that's, that's laced with a little bit of lead so you get, make your money stretch a little further. That's kind of like inflation, isn't it? <laughs> that's what it is. See, it's, it's ripping people off. And God says, don't do that. Be just and fair. Be honorable in all your dealings. Proverbs fifteen twenty seven: He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. He who hates bribes will live. Third practical application is be a just leader. 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. I want to read that. 
Second Samuel 23, 3 and 4. See, all of you will be called to be leaders in some way. All of you might not be pastors. All of you might, might not be presidents of corporations and things. But all of you will be leaders in the sense that Jesus calls us to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. All of us are an example of Christ's life to, to the watching world. And this is what Jesus, this is what, what David said. The God of Israel has said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds when the, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through, through sunshine after rain. The ruler who rules justly and righteously is like that. It's like the, the, the morning sunrise and all its beauty and pristine glory. That's what a man who rules righteously is like. So be a fair leader. Be equitable in everything that you do. Deuteronomy 16, 18 says, Let the leaders of Israel judge righteously. And then in James 2, 1 through 4, you can read that sometime later. What that says is, When a poor man and a rich man come into your midst, don't treat the rich man good and tell the poor man you know, to sit back in the toilet. But you know, treat them both with equity. We do that, don't we? You know, treat a rich man, rich man real good, but a poor man, guy who's down and out, will say, well, you know, why don't you sit in the back of the church, you know, you know we're to pre- treat everyone alike, and that's, that's part of what equity is all about. And then number four, be an activist who cries out for justice in the earth. And I think, Vern, this is where your question will be answered. Be an activist who cries out for justice in the earth. We are to be the upholders of justice in the earth. We are the ones who are to cry out for the oppressed. We are the ones who are to cry out for those who are cheated by, by an unrighteous system. Not our own rights, understand, but the rights of others. We are to stand up on the behalf of others. That's what it says in Isaiah 5, 7 and Isaiah 59, verses 13 through 15. I'll read the latter verse. Isaiah 59, verses 13 through 15. God is displeased when, when there's not justice in the land. God is very, very upset with us when we don't stand for what is right. And actually, it's, it's, it's a, very, it's a very, um, uh, very terrible thing for us in the, in the body of Christ to not have been on the ground level of the civil rights movement, isn't it? We should have been leading. Well, actually, Martin Luther King was a Christian, and he was leading the civil rights movement. We all should have been right in there in the center of that saying, that's right. There should be no racial – there should be racial equality. We should have been on the forefront of the women's liberation movement saying there should be equal work for equal pay. There are some things the women's lib I don't buy, but there's some things like justice and equity that I buy that we should have been the first one to say, this is not fair. We should be standing up for – you know, equal pay for, for equal works. There's things of justice. God calls us to be the guardians of justice in the earth. Isaiah 59, verses 13 through 15. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words, and justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Sounds like our nation today, doesn't it? For truth has stumbled in the streets, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, someone turns from evil, he becomes the enemy of everyone. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, 
that there was no justice. We are called to be the, the, the guardians of justice. In Amos 5.24, Amos cries, let justice roll down like waters. Let justice roll down like waters. Areas like the world hunger problem involves us as Christians because is it just that some people are starving on this planet and others have too much to eat? That's a matter of justice, and that ought to concern us. There's bunches of social problems, social um, things that ought to very much concern us. The plight of the poor, the, you know, the unequal distribution of wealth, the, the problems that some of the older people are facing in our society, the runaway teenagers. Man, all of that is things that we should be on the ground level and, you know, God will teach, we can't all do everything, but God will burden each one of us where we can be a part of that. But we need to be identified with justice in the earth. You understand that? See, we've so far, so many times the church has taken a back seat to that. And we've been part of the establishment that's been oppressing people. We've unwittingly become a part of the system that is, that is, that is perpetuating injustice and inequity. And it's time for Christians to stand up and say no to unrighteous kinds of things, to say no to things that are not promoting equality and, and, and equity in the earth. And then Luke 18 says the same thing. You can read that. The final judgment, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. This is an awesome scripture. I'd like you to, I'd like you to close your eyes as I read this. Let the Holy Spirit give us a sense of, of the awesomeness of this moment. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. On the great judgment day, everyone will receive justice. Everyone will get exactly what he deserves. And God will be absolutely fair with every moral being, every person that's ever lived. It's God's desire to be merciful because he wants to forgive. But if, if people spurn his mercy and will not receive his grace and mercy, then they will get justice. They will get what's coming to them. That's an awesome day. And so even though justice seems to elude us in some ways during history and during this time, there's a day when all accounts will be settled and everyone after that great white throne judgment will agree that God is just. No one will question God's justice. I want to close by reading a story. At the end of time, millions of people were scattered on a great throne great plain before God's throne. 
Some of the group near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a joking brunette. She, drove, she jerked back a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number, number from a, a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no other crime but being black. We suffocated in slave ships, been wrenched from loved ones, toiled till only death gave us release. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and the suffering he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. Indeed, what did God know about what man had been forced to endure in this world? After all, God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each group sent out a leader chosen because he had suffered the most. There was a Jew, a black, and untouchable from India, an illegitimate, a person from Hiroshima, and one from a Siberian slave camp. In the center of the plain, they consulted each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather simple. Before God could be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. But because he was God, they set certain safeguards to be sure he would not use his divine powers to help himself. Let him be born to a hated minority group. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted so that none will know who really is, is his father. Let him champion a cause so just but so radical that it brings down upon him the hate, the condemnation, and the eliminating efforts of every, ma every major traditional and established religious authority. Let him be betrayed by his dearest friends. Let him be indicted on false charges, tried before a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him, see, let him see what it is to be terribly alone and completely abandoned by every living thing. Let him be tortured and let him die. Let him die the most humiliating death with common thieves. As each leader pronounced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the great throng of people. When at last they had finished pronouncing the sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For, God, for suddenly all knew God had already served his sentence. God served his sentence in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.